If you have any more questions about Bombay Teen Challenge, catch up with Dennis or with Jim. Uh, even as we've been going through the book of Exodus, one of the things we keep seeing is slavery and death. And we said a few weeks back that in our time, there is more slaves than ever before in history. And so the Lord may have put this uniquely on us, that we're going through this, thinking about this at the same time. There are people within our family here that are connected to this. And so we as a church family are rallying behind it. So however you can serve to that end, however God might use us to work against slavery, we want to do that. All right, so think through that, uh, participate in every way that you can. All right, today is a special day on the Christian church calendar. Uh, today, Christians around the world celebrate this Sunday as Palm Sunday, and it's the beginning of what many around the world consider to be the holiest week of the year for believers in Christ. This is the week that leads to, on Thursday, as we announced, remembering the Lord's Supper and the day that Jesus instituted the new covenant and the remembrance meal of that through communion leading to Good Friday, the day remembering the day when Christ hung on a cross for those hours on that Friday. The whole world turned dark as Jesus took upon himself our sin. And then we remember and we come out at the end of this week on the other side on Sunday rejoicing in the resurrection of Christ and his great triumph over sin and Satan and death. Okay, uh, I just want to say one word about this pastorally to our church because of the context that we come from. Um, as you enter into this week, uh, just a word for you. Some of our us grew up around Christianity and in church, and so we viewed even things like this differently. And so some folks, this week is set apart and significant. These days are special, unique days where we get to remember in a unique way these events about the death and resurrection of the Lord. We celebrate things like Christmas. We celebrate things like Good Friday and Easter to remember uniquely these moments. For some of us, we grow up in traditions and backgrounds and uh, come from churches in Christianity where every day is the same, right? And so every day we're remembering the birth of Christ and his coming for us. And every day we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And every Sunday, of course, is Resurrection Sunday. We gather on the first day of the week because it's on that day that the Lord rose from the dead. And so every Sunday is a celebration of Easter. Usually what happens between these two camps is that they lob grenades back and forth at each other and one side mocks the other for paying attention to these kinds of holidays. The other side mocks the other for not being as holy and remembering them and, and both go nowhere. What we would better do is what the Apostle Paul calls us to do in all such matters where Christians disagree is to show great love, great charity, and great unity through these moments. I'll read you one verse from Romans 14 where he says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And so throughout that whole chapter in Romans 14, Paul is going to give different illustrations where Christians disagree and says to them, listen, love and unity and charity towards one another, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. So as we enter this week, I'd, I'd advise you to enter in that same way. All right, so Christians, today, remember this day as Palm Sunday. 
And, and what we're celebrating, what we're remembering on a day like this is the triumphal entry of Jesus, the triumphant entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Christ the King had come to the earth to die for men, and he came into the city of Jerusalem. No one forced him in. No one dragged him in. He led his disciples in because he knew he had come to die. And so he, he walks into Jerusalem. And on that day, on a Sunday much like this one, the crowds gathered around Jesus. They recognized him for who he is. They shouted, Hosanna, a word that that both means praise and at the same time means save us. So it's this declaration of praise and this cry for salvation all at once. And they shouted Hosanna. They lined the streets with their cloaks and they cut down palm branches to welcome Jesus into the city. It's, a, it's an incredible moment, but we all know, if you know the story of the gospel, if you know the story of how the rest of the week goes... Before Jesus gets to the other side of that week, the same crowds that shouted Hosanna will turn against him, will reject him, and the crowds will then shout, crucify him, crucify him. And the same crowds that believed him and received him and welcomed him will turn around and condemn him and speak a word of judgment over him. Right? He was hailed one moment for the salvation that God was going to accomplish. Hosanna, save us, and we praise you because you've come to save us. But before they would get to the other side of that week, the same crowds would speak a great word of judgment over him. All of that is very similar to our passage today. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus in a story that we've been calling the gospel according to Exodus. And today we're in Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5 will be in the whole chapter and all the way through 6 verse 9. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to page 48. When we last saw Moses, let me just refresh your memory. When we last saw Moses, God had called Moses to mission. And Moses was anything but eager to take the job. If you were here last week, you remember five times in five different ways, Moses rejects God's call, objects to God's call, begs God to send anyone but him. Eventually, throughout the conversation that spans through Exodus 3 and 4, God wins Moses, God pins him down, and God sends Moses on mission. In chapter 4, verse 18, you'll see that Moses comes down off the mountain where he saw the bush that was burning but was not consumed. He goes to his father-in-law and he explains what happened to him and he asks for permission to go to Egypt. His father-in-law blesses him and sends him. And so Moses takes his wife and his two sons. He loads up the donkey and they head out for Egypt. Along the way, he meets his brother, we're told in verse 27 and 28. He comes across Aaron. They have this conversation that you can imagine most brothers would have. It's one verse in which Moses communicates what's about to happen. Aaron gets on board, right? When I think of this scene, I think of Shibu and Shiju. If you know these two brothers, you probably wouldn't know they were brothers because I've never seen them talk ever, right? And, and it's sort of like, hey, how are you? Good, good, all right, and that's it. And I picture that's what this scene would have looked like. Moses would have said, hey, we're going to Egypt. Why? We're going to free the slaves. Okay, I'm in. 
And so these two brothers go, and so now they're headed to Egypt. Verse 30, Aaron and Moses show up in Egypt. They assemble the people, the crowds of Israel before him, and they perform the signs God told them to perform and say the words God told them to say. And we read in verse 30 of chapter 4, And the people believed... And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that, they, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. It's this beautiful moment. Moses has come down off the mountain. He's been hesitant. He hasn't wanted to go. What if they don't believe? He goes and says what God tells them to say, and they believe. They receive him. They welcome him. They believe in God. They believe Moses. They worship the salvation that God was going to accomplish. I don't know if they said the word, but it was like their souls were shouting, Hosanna, praise to the Lord, and save us now. A declaration of praise and a cry of salvation all at once. But before we come out to the other side of chapter 5, you're going to find the same crowds of people that believed him and received this word and, and rejoiced in it will speak a word of judgment over Moses. And that's because everything in this chapter, much like what we're going to remember in this week, goes from really good to really bad in a hurry. And before things will get better on the other side of chapter 5, things will get really dark and really bad. The same crowds that rejoiced in him, received him, and welcomed him will speak a word of condemnation and judgment over him. So what I want to do today as we walk through chapter 5 and some of chapter 6 is just give you four observations from the text. God is about to work in these people's lives. He's about to deliver them and set them free and redeem them and rescue them and make them his own. And as God is about to do all of that... I want us to walk through four things from the scriptures today, all right? Four observations that I want us to make as we walk through this passage. Let me pray for a moment. We'll ask the Lord for his help, and then we'll continue to think through this. Our God, we come humbly before you not to offer up a ritualistic prayer, but before we preach to remember that unless you come, our time will be in vain. But if you come... Our time will be of great profit for our souls, for the people around us, for our families, for our city, for your glory. Much good can be done if you are with us in this time. So we'd ask the Holy Spirit to be with me. I yield myself to you and yield my tongue and my thoughts and my words to you. I rely not on myself but on you and beg that you would speak your word to your people. We yield your people to you that they would submit their ears and their hearts and their minds to hear and believe and understand your word, that you, Holy Spirit, might minister to us exactly where we need for the good of all people around us, for the good of the city you've called us to, for the good of all that are around us and for your glory. Do more than we knew to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we'll pick up the story in chapter 5, verse 1, page 48. This is what it says. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness. So here's the scene. Aaron and Moses have done 
exactly what God told them to do. In chapter 4, if you remember, God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh, say this to him, tell him, let my people go that they may worship me. And Moses does exactly what God told him to do. He goes to Pharaoh and he announces this word, this gospel, this good news for the people that there is a Lord who has a claim on them. They don't belong to Pharaoh ultimately. There's a God that has a claim on them. They belong to him. They worship him. And so Moses is to go to Pharaoh and announce that the God of the Hebrews declares that they are to be let go so that they might worship him. And you are about to see in chapter 5 what we'll consider in two more weeks how hard Pharaoh's heart is. You're about to see how wicked, how hardened this man's heart is. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. If you notice, the, the word Lord is all caps, and we talked through that in chapter 4, and we said, when you have this name in all caps, you have the proper name of God. It's the word Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And so Pharaoh is essentially saying, who is Yahweh? That's a good question, right? This is some desert God of the Israelites from the wilderness. How on earth is Pharaoh to know who Yahweh is? And that's what he says. If you had said Ra, the sun god had come, or Osiris, or Horus, or the other gods in the Egyptian pantheon, and they had commanded something, okay, maybe we'd have something to talk about. But who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And even if I did know he is, why would I let Israel go? Though Pharaoh doesn't know it, he's actually raising perhaps the central question of the whole Exodus story, and that is, who is the Lord of these people? Who are they supposed to serve? Who is their God? Who are they supposed to worship? Who do they belong to? Who has a claim on them? That's the battle that Pharaoh and God are going through. Who do these people really belong to? And if you're honest, at least on the surface for throughout the first five chapters, thus far it seems like they are property of Pharaoh. That Pharaoh is their Lord and Pharaoh is their God. Pharaoh decides whom they will serve and how they will serve and what they will build. Pharaoh decides who lives and who dies. What Pharaoh says in the land goes. And so the question that's being raised already is, whose word will ultimately prevail. Who says something to these people and it shall come to pass? There's this great contest going on about who is really God over these people. Who is their real master and real Lord and whom will they serve and worship? The first thing I want us to observe from the text, just to notice together, is that when God is about to work and when God is working in their lives and seeking to save them and redeem them and liberate them and claim them as his own and have more of them and let them have more of him, the master that presently holds them seeks to try to keep holding them at great cost, right? When God is about to work in our lives... There's this reality in which the thing that presently holds us tries to hold us tighter than it's ever held us before, right? The gods of your life, the masters that you submit to, they will not let you go easily or without a fight. 
When news comes that there is a greater God who has claim on their lives, Pharaoh seeks to tighten his grip over their necks tighter than he's ever held them before. He is not simply going to lie down as another claims to be their true God, Master and Lord. When God seeks to work in our life, when God seeks to redeem us and rescue us and liberate us, the masters which we are held by seek to hold us even tighter than ever before. Maybe some of you know this well. We've said, said this before, and, and we'll keep saying it throughout the book of Exodus. But, but the story here is who are these people going to serve, right? We popularly think that Moses went in and said, let my people go. He never says that. What he always says is, let my people go so that they may serve me. Because the question of Exodus is not going to be, can these people go from worshiping one God to autonomy, but who will they worship? They're going to serve somebody. Who is that somebody going to be? And we've said throughout this series, we all know that, that we who are bound by things... We seek to use things that turn around and then use us, right? Nobody goes out trying to become an addict to something, trying to become slave to something. What we intend to do is be master over something to get what we really want, but these things that we try to master, in turn, master us. We try to rule it so that we can get whatever we're after, but they, in turn, turn around and rule over us, and they will not let us break free of them. They don't simply let us go when we want to be let go. The things that imprison us clench tighter as we seek to break free. Maybe you know this in simple ways. Any of you like me who have ever tried to go on a diet, right? You never know the grip that food has on you until you try to break free of it. And then you realize this thing has clutched your heart so badly you cannot break free. It, it works in deeper ways, too. The man that gives in to his lust, right? He feeds this lust, and yet the irony is the more that he feeds it, the hungrier this thing gets. And the things that once entertained him now are boring and dull to him, and he needs to go deeper in to places he would have never thought he would go for him to be satisfied. It's like the more you feed it, the hungrier this thing gets, and you think you're going to break free, and the firmer it holds you. The woman who gives in to her self-centeredness, her selfishness, she would imagine that by turning inward, she'll be satisfied with who she is and can look out. But she finds that the more she looks at herself, the more she needs to keep looking at herself the more addicted to selfishness she becomes. And there's never enough of her that she can get. She's constantly forced to keep looking inward to satisfy. Whatever the things are that hold us, they do not let go without a fight. You try to break free and the harder it will become. So it was for Pharaoh, right? God was seeking to work in the lives of these people, seeking to redeem them, rescue them, and he began to try to hold on to them tighter than he ever had before. Verse 3, this is what it says. They said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Here's Pharaoh's response. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, 
Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you want them to rest from their burdens? The same day, here's Pharaoh's command, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. That's why they cry. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, for they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So here's the scene. Moses and Aaron go and tell Pharaoh exactly what God told them to say. And Pharaoh responds by tightening his grip around this people tighter than he's ever held them before, right? He orders that bricks be made just as in the past, only now they are not to be provided with the straw that they need to make the bricks. We know from ancient documents and manuscripts and Egyptian practice that mud was assembled together, put into a mold, baked under the hot sun, and that's how you got bricks, And straw was this key ingredient into that whole mixture because that's what kept it intact and gave it its form. We know that one of Pharaoh's pyramids took about 24 and a half million bricks. And we know from the ancient documents that a a top flight brick maker at top speed could make a few thousand bricks a day. And so now Pharaoh, who is already working these people to the bone already working them to their breaking point, now breaks them. He says, you want to talk about freedom? That's because you don't have enough work to do. That's because you're lazy and idle. That's the only reason why you would entertain these thoughts about going out somewhere. What you need is more work, harder work. And so he orders that an edict be sent throughout the land. They are to make the bricks just like they had made before, the same number, not one brick short, only now they are to go and find their own straw to do it. So everything they've been doing and now more. So what you begin to see is it is now worse for the people of Israel than it has ever been before in 400 years. It's worse for them They had it bad, and now it's worse than it's ever been. And here's what I want you to consider. What is Pharaoh doing here? He's not trying to raise productivity. He's not asking for more bricks. What he's trying to do is make them so helpless and hopeless that they have no time to entertain thoughts about salvation. He's trying to work them so hard that they think that God's truth is a lie. Hear that again. Look at verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So what does he call the news of salvation, the gospel, the good news that these people will be saved? He calls them lying words. What he's trying to get these people to believe is that God's truth is a lie. Right? That's, that's the ploy of the serpent from the beginning. If you remember Genesis, he hisses in the garden. Did God really say? And so what he wants to do with these people is break them and make them so hopeless that they cannot believe God's truth because it's too far-fetched. He wants to make them hopeless so that they see God's truth as a lie. 
And that's what the things that hold you, your masters, the enemy of your soul, wants to do whatever he can to convince you that God's truth and God's good news is unbelievable. It can't be. I'll give you an example from my life. This is a very timely word and passage for me, even to the details of this story. Uh, uh, In this story, what you see is what? Pharaoh, we've already seen throughout these early chapters, he's anti-God in lots of ways, right? He's against the creation mandate. He's against the people multiplying. Everything God is for, Pharaoh is against. And in this passage, another thing that you see is that he is anti-rest, He's anti-rest. If you look at verse 4, you'll see that. The, the king said to Moses, why do you take them away from their work? Get back to their burdens. Verse 5, why do you take them away? Make them rest from their burdens. Verse 7, uh, let them go and work. And then you'll see again in verse 17 and 18, the people of Israel will come and complain to Pharaoh and his cry to them is, you're lazy, you're lazy, you're idle, you're idle. That's why you want a break. In every way, he's anti the rest of God's people, right? This word rest is literally the word sabbath. And and maybe you hear it there. What he is, is he's anti-sabbath. He is anti rest for God's people. And when you think about that, you begin to think through, we'll, we'll talk about Sabbath in, in months to come, but you begin to think how gracious God is and what a better master Yahweh is. Because when Yahweh frees them and they are now his, one of the things God will command is that they are to keep the Sabbath. They are to rest. Now, we hear that, and a command can sound so oppressive. We've got to take a day off. That's because we're so warped, right? They, imagine how they would have heard it. They had spent their whole lives for four centuries, and the only thing they had ever been told was, you need to work more and work harder, and what's required of you is more productivity. We need you to work. And now, God commands them rest, I want you to rest. In fact, I insist you rest. You begin to see how anti-God Yahweh, Pharaoh is, and how anti-Pharaoh God is. And and these people have a much better master in God. All right, so how does that relate to me and, and these things that want to hold us and keep us from believing the truth of the gospel? Again, I said it's been a very timely word for me because one of the things I've been wrestling with just in my own experience, my own story, is what does it look like to rest well? I have a job that's unlike many of yours. My work is in the text and prayer and pastoring. I do religious stuff for my occupation. And so for me, I'm constantly wrestling with what do I do when I'm off the clock? Because in my downtime, I know there's no division between sacred and secular. All time belongs to God. What would it look like when I'm off the clock to rest? And I'll be honest, I've said to church planters and coaches that are coaching me, listen, if you tell me to read again after I'm off the clock, that seems like more work. In fact, prayer seems like work to me because that's what I'm supposed to do during my day. So you can begin to see how warped and weird and twisted my heart is and how much I need to think through all this. So I'm, I'm venting this to a church planting coach and I'm saying, what am I supposed to do for rest? 
What would glorify God in my downtime? Because does he, does he want me to pray more after the day or read more after the day? What is, what is going to make him happy? And this church planter very insightfully said to me, Ajay, I don't think your problem is what are you supposed to do for rest? I think your problem is how you see God. And so I wanted to be like, no, 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 just give me three strategies on what I should do in my downtime so he'll be happy. And he goes, no, 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 I think it's about how you see God. And we began to talk, and what the Spirit began to show me was, I have a very warped understanding of who God is. I think that what pleases God is productivity. And so what makes him happy is for me to get things done and work hard, and and that when I'm just hanging out or not getting things done, how on earth would he be pleased with me? And so I've begun to believe this thing that the way to keep him happy is to keep working and to make sure that I'm productive with all my time. And so God has become, rather than a gracious father, he's become this employer that I can never get away from. He's, he's my boss during the day, and he's my boss in my off time as well. And so it's like this boss I can never escape from. And why is all of that warring, and why is all of that happening in my heart? It's because I don't believe the gospel. And my enemy, my own sense of righteousness that comes through my productivity, wants to convince me, you need to work and work harder and work more. That's what's required of you. And I don't believe that I have a gracious God who says, the work that was required is finished. Jesus did the work that I required. Jesus did the work that is pleasing to me. You have nothing more to add, nothing more to contribute to his finished work. In fact, rest because he has done everything that was required. Rest because he has done what pleased me. We're going to remember on Friday of this week that one of the last things Jesus breathes out from the cross is, it is finished. The work is done. And, and my enemy will not let me believe that good news. He won't let me believe the finished work of Jesus and, and that Jesus' salvation is good news and that I have a better master, a master who's not sitting with a whip ready to work me to the bone, but a master who has allowed his son to work so that I might experience rest. We have a good master. And again, I don't know what thing holds you. But I do know that thing is working overtime to get you to believe that the gospel is unbelievable, right? How is someone really supposed to believe that it is godly not to work only, but to rest? That's really good news. And yet the enemy of our soul will try to convince you as God is working in your life and seeking to redeem you and rescue and deliver you, the enemy will work harder than ever before to let God's truth look like a lie to you, to make the gospel seem unbelievable. There's no way that good news could be true. So one of the things that we see, at least I want to observe in the text, is as God begins to work in your life, whatever holds you seeks to tighten its hold ever more than ever before. But the good news is we have a good master, a better master than whatever holds you now. A second thing I want you to see, and we'll go through this quickly, is that when God begins to work in your life and when he's seeking to save you and liberate you and redeem you and rescue you, 
things may often get worse rather than better. That when God is working in your life, things may often get worse rather than better. That is very counterintuitive to us because that doesn't flow the logic of how we think things should work. I obey God, things should go well. What will it mean if I obey God and things go from bad to worse? In verses 10 through 14, what you see is Moses now, Pharaoh now enacts this next insane command into the land. The people are ordered to make the bricks without the straw. They cannot do it. They fail to meet quota. And so the foremen of Israel, they're sort of the middle management, they are beaten because the people are not making enough bricks. And so these four men run to Pharaoh's palace seeking mercy from a deranged man like Pharaoh. Verse 15, Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Again, it's this small detail, but, but who are these people aligning with? Just a few days ago, they had believed Moses that they were going to be set free, that God had a claim on them. And now when circumstances get difficult, they run to the very thing they're trying to run from and look for salvation from it. And they cry out to Pharaoh three times, we're your servants. Why are you treating your servants this way? Help us, your servants. Verse 17, but he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. These foremen cry out to Pharaoh of all people for mercy, and no surprise, they are denied. And then they come out now afraid for their lives because things have gone from bad to worse and they meet Moses. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them and as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. A few days prior, they had received Moses. They had welcomed Moses. They had believed this word. They were in their hearts shouting, Hosanna, save us now. And now they pronounce judgment over Moses. They say, may the Lord judge you for what you've done. They turn to Moses and say, save us. You came to save us? You put a sword in Pharaoh's hand to kill us. You might as well have run us down yourself. You came to save us, and now things are worse than they've ever been before. Think through that for a second. Moses obeyed God, and the result was what? A happy life with spiritual victory, and, and everything was right. No. Moses obeys God, and as a direct result of his obedience... Things are worse than they've ever been before. What do you do when God is at work and doing redemption and working in your life that doesn't fit the equation you have? Obedience equals good, happy life. 
What do you do when the equation turns out obedience equals things are worse than they've ever been before? We think we know how God works, and every now and then God throws a wrench into the whole thing. What if God doesn't accomplish redemption the way that you have prescribed it needs to work? One of the things the scriptures do is give us a lens in which to see all this. And, and the Lord Jesus helps us understand this man, Moses, has done nothing wrong. Because as a direct result of his obedience, things get worse. Well, Jesus was the most obedient man on the planet in history. And as a direct result of his obedience to God, things go really bad for him. Worse than it's ever been for him or for anyone in all of history. We are sometimes tempted to think that suffering and trials and setbacks and, and difficulties are a sign that God is displeased with us, that somehow they're a sign that we've walked off step, that somehow they're a sign of God's condemnation and judgment. I'm not denying that God may not discipline us and discipline us through difficulty. But I am saying that God is God enough to use even suffering for his good and that obedience does not mean that suffering will never come. In fact, the most obedient man in the world faced untold suffering and undeserved difficulty. It, it's so counterintuitive for us that even the people who were standing by Jesus' cross couldn't believe it. Jesus was crying out to God from his cross and they couldn't make sense of what to do with that. And so they mocked him and they said, yeah, let's see if you come down from the cross. Because for them, the equation worked like this. If God is trustworthy and Jesus trusts him, then Jesus should not hang on the cross. And if Jesus is hanging on the cross, that means one of the first two premises are off. Either God is not trustworthy or Jesus doesn't really trust him. But how are you going to have both? God is trustworthy. Jesus does trust him. And yet Jesus is crucified. Sufferings and setbacks come as God is working in our lives. And, and the, the key question is going to be, how are you going to respond to them? Not why are they there, though that question is important, but how are you going to respond? That's the third thing I want us to see in the text. How does Moses respond? As God begins to work in their life and save them and redeem them and rescue them and deliver them, what holds them seeks to hold them tighter. But we have a good master. And then suffering comes even as a direct result of his obedience. And how will Moses respond? Who does Moses turn to? Look at verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. As I was reading through Exodus and just preparing, I, my eyes got glued to these verses, partly because I have no idea what it's like to pray like that. This is one of the most honest prayers you'll find in the scriptures. And I don't even know that it's a perfect prayer. In fact, I want to suggest that there might be sin in this prayer. Moses accuses God of things that he should not be accused of. And yet the key is he still turns Godward and he's honest. 
When the circumstances got difficult and the trials came, the people, the crowds of Israel, they turned to Pharaoh and said, save us. But Moses turns to the Lord and he prays an honest prayer and he bears his soul before God. He turns in faith and voices his complaint to the Lord. If you read through the Psalms, you find the psalmist saying things you probably don't have the courage to say to God. Hear that again. If you read through the Psalms, if you read Moses' prayer, you find these holy men saying to God things that we probably wouldn't have the courage to say. And yet the difference is while we turn inward and don't say them, they turn Godward and are honest before the Lord. Their suffering drives them further to God rather than away from him. Right? I've noticed often with me and Shainu, Shainu will say things that I feel like, don't say that. He'll hear you. And I'll be thinking them, but I won't voice them. And I find in her faith just an honesty with her God that I long for in my faith. Listen to what Moses says. He says, Lord, why have you done this to your people? Why have you done this evil to your people? A verse later, he's going to say, Pharaoh's done evil. And he's going to say, here, God's done evil. It's like he's saying, both Pharaoh and God are doing the same thing, like they've teamed up against us. He accuses God of evil. Oh, Lord, why have you done this evil to your people? Has God ever done evil? The whole scriptures shout no. And yet he cries out to God and says, why have you done this? And don't read that as just a question because it's a statement more than a question. What he's saying is you have done evil to this people. Then he cries out, why did you ever send me? I love that prayer, right? It's like Moses is saying, weren't you there on the mountain? I begged you, don't send me. I tried five different ways to get anybody else. Why did you send me if this is how things were going to turn out? As a direct result of my coming, things have gotten worse for this people. Think through that. If you're Israel, for four centuries you have felt like God ignored you, was deaf to you, was blind to you, could not see you, wasn't remembering you. And now somebody shows up and says, God hears, God's about to act. And you actually risk your heart and you believe. And as a direct result of what this man does, things are worse for you than they've ever been. And Moses says, why did you send me? And then he'll say, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Do you hear him? Since I came, things have gotten worse, and you, God, have done jack. You've done nothing. You haven't delivered them at all. Your suffering will either turn you away from God or turn you Godward to bear before him the honest cries of your heart and to tell God what he already sees and what he already knows. I'm not commending to you Moses' precise words. What I am commending to you is Moses' Godward, honest prayer. And Moses' prayer would point to the great obedient one, right? Who in the face of untold suffering would cry out honest prayers to his God. On Thursday of this week, we will remember that Jesus begs the Father, please take this cup away from me. 
He turned Godward in the midst of his pain, not away from God, not seeking salvation somewhere else, but turned Godward and said, you take this cup. And when God denied that request, he obeyed. So that even on the cross, he prays this honest prayer from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He obeys God, and as a direct result of his obedience, things go terribly wrong, and he turns Godward for our sake. Things go worse for Jesus than they have ever gone for us, directly because of our sin, placed upon him. And in that moment, when God himself has turned away, Jesus turns to God. And it was for our sake. One last thing I want to show you from the passage, and then we'll be done. Moses, God is beginning to work in the lives of these people. The master that holds them, holds them tighter before, but we have a good master. And then we see that these people face untold suffering, but Moses turns to God. And the last thing I want you to hear is, even when these people are faithless, God remains faithful. Even when they are faithless, God remains faithful. What you begin to see in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, we won't look there, is that as these people turn away and disbelieve, and as Moses cries out this prayer of complaint, God patiently hears. I'm amazed that Moses can pray this prayer and not get hit with a bolt of lightning. I would have imagined 6 verse 1 reads, and Moses died, right? And yet, God receives this honest prayer and actually has enough grace and compassion to answer back. No, Moses, it's not what you think. I am about to act. He doesn't reject the people for their faithlessness. He doesn't reject Moses for his honesty. In fact, all he does is promises them again his salvation. I'll read you verses 6 onwards of chapter 6. Just listen. Seven I will statements, hear them from the Lord. God responds by saying, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. He responds with great patience to Moses and to this people, promising again his salvation. And whatever you might be going through, what if you were to hear this promise for you? What if you were to hear that God says to you, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of your sin and your trial. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I have redeemed you with outstretched arms and with acts of judgment to myself so that acts of mercy might be shown to you. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And I will bring you into a land, a land that I swore to Abraham and Isaac and all the faithful, a land that I will give as your possession. What if you were to hear that's the God we have, a God who remains faithful even when we are faithless, 
a God who is patient with these people. In verse 9, what you read is Moses goes and tells the people all the good news, the gospel, this good news of God's salvation. And it says the people were so broken, they could not listen. Think of that. That, that really struck with me. You'll have people that you will speak truth into their lives, and yet they're so broken they cannot hear it. Be patient with them. Be patient with them. That verse jumped out to me because I'm a big truth teller. And, and, and when people are going through things, I, I want to point out truth to them. And yet Moses learns that he goes and tells these people the gospel, but they're so broken by their harsh slavery, they cannot hear it. And God doesn't strike them down either. In fact, the next verse is, go back to Pharaoh because I'm about to still save. God is very patient, even when their broken spirit cannot receive truth. And so we ought to be a very patient people as God has been patient with us. So as we walk through chapter 5, I want to just ask you these questions, right? Whatever you're in the midst of, who is Lord of your life? Who has claim over you? Who do you belong to? Who do you serve? Who do you worship? That's the great question of Exodus. And the great question of all of our stories is, who is Lord over your life? You will either live for slave masters that will kill you. And you'll keep running to them, asking them to save you when they will only make your life harder and worse. Or you will run to the only Savior who gave his life for your sins and sets you free. A good master who promises you rest because the work has been finished by him. And if God is calling you to obedience, whatever the outcome, are you ready to obey? Even if that will mean for you difficulty. Even if that will mean for you things will go from bad to worse. Will you trust by faith, not in circumstances, but in the God who has called you? And in the midst of your suffering, are you running from God or turning God word so that you're bearing your soul honestly before the Lord and bearing your heart to a God who sees your heart anyway? And do you believe that God is faithful even when you are faithless? that God will redeem, that God outstretched his arms for your sake so that if you would repent and trust in him, he will redeem you, he will save you, he will deliver you from the hands of the things that hold you. Our God is present in Exodus 5 and with us as well. Let's pray.